Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a show about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical political, economic, and social freedom. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. Years ago, a then-colleague and I pitched the idea of a book called The Reasonableness of Radicalism. It would have set out the case for an unapologetically radical political liberty and defended it against calls for moderation. The project never went anywhere, though, because we were told by the people making decisions they didn't like to use the word radical because it might turn people off. Clearly, that's not a worry I share, and neither does my guest today. Jason Lee Bias is a PhD candidate in philosophy at the University of Michigan and a fellow at the Center for a Stateless Society. He's also the author of the best essay I've read in a long time, Radical Liberalism, The Soul of Libertarianism, which I'd link to in the show notes and strongly encourage you to read. Before we jump in, I want to remind you that you can get every episode of Reimagining Liberty two weeks early, along with other perks, by becoming a supporter of the show. Head to reimaginingliberty.com slash subscribe to learn more. Now, here's my conversation with Jason. What does it mean to be a political radical? I don't think radical radicalism just means having more extreme opinions or having uh, kind of less usual opinions, but it's something more about kind of taking an idea to its roots and applying it consistently and seeing it as something that has like uh, the, the problems that you're thinking of or the kind of main things that you're concerned about having wide reaching pervasive implications. So for example, uh, when people talk about radical feminism, they don't just mean particularly extreme forms. They mean uh, the idea that patriarchy is something that deeply structures our world, uh, that is crops up in every part of social relations. Similarly, uh, the reason that uh, Marxism is a radical approach is because it uh, holds that the anarchy of production in the market is something that uh, infects every part of uh, existing society, and that to overturn it, uh, that you need to overturn the market itself. So that's the example uh, in uh, just as it, in general the idea of what it means to be a radical. Um, so in the case of radical liberalism, uh, at, which I think we'll be talking about here. Uh, the idea is that the things that liberals are concerned with uh, are things that are deeply, uh, the, the things that liberals are concerned with are things that have much wider reaching implications than people tend to realize who might think of themselves as liberals. Does radicalism entail action? I suppose, like if you are to, to call someone a political radical, does that mean that they want to move things very quickly or affect immediate change or even affect change at all? Or can you be, I suppose, radical in the sense of my underlying ideological, moral, philosophical beliefs, if taken to their you know logical conclusions or taken seriously, would mean 
changing a lot of things or critiquing a lot of things much more deeply than we often do. But for other reasons, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not ready to smash the state or I am, I think that those things point to maybe like a North star, but I want to be conservatively cautious in my approach to getting there. Or even, I don't know if we can ever or should ever get there, but it's at least like the direction we should be inching towards. Yeah. So that's a complicated question. Uh, And I'm kind of tempted to say varieties of yes and no. So for example, um, obviously it depends on the kind of thing that someone is radical about, uh, that if you adopt a certain kind of uh, radical skepticism, for example, that will uh, historically, in the case of like the Perodian skeptics who deny that you could have any kind of knowledge, uh, that will lead you to be v- extremely conservative in uh, what you think about the actual world. Um, but in more political contexts, generally, it does have some connection to action uh, because. Uh, you're going to probably apply the same ideas that you hold about politics generally to the process of political change itself. Uh, That if you have radical libertarian views, for example, uh, that your skepticism of state power are also going to give you reasons to be skeptical of uh, reforming the state from within the state, for example. Um, At the same time, radical is a different concept from revolutionary. Uh, I I myself would consider myself kind of radical, but would be very averse to uh, more revolutionary ideas. And there I have in mind revolutionary as something that is trying to kind of just replace one system, one existing system with a new, different uh, system, kind of all at once. Uh, There's a lot of reasons that can go uh, south very quickly, obviously, Um, that if you, especially if you're, if you're a radical about libertarian and liberal ideas, then uh, you're going to be very skeptical of the extent to which you can kind of ex ante, like in advance, uh, know exactly uh, what the kind of ideal institutions that you would want are actually going to look like. So those are reasons to be skeptical of of revolutionary change from within a radical perspective. Um, But at the same time, I do think that it does, uh, that a radical approach does give reasons to be uh, to to think more carefully about uh, whether or not the standardly accepted channels of political change um, are actually very effective, uh, given the analysis you might otherwise have about political institutions. I want to talk more about that, but it seems like we should turn for a moment at least to liberalism so that we can better pair these things. So what do you mean by a liberal? Because liberalism is this often slippery term where people who mean quite different things use it and often say people who I would think of as liberal 
will use the term as pejorative um, or people who claim the term liberal, I think of as not really taking liberal conclusions or liberal principles to their, you know, to their ultimate conclusions. And so it's, it's hard to pin down what it means in the political context. Yeah. So it's kind of part, uh, part of what I was getting at in, uh, the essay that you said you that that you had as like framing this discussion uh is so i there's the the typical line in libertarian circles is that uh liberal used to mean libertarian and then the name was stolen by progressives uh i don't think i think there's some truth to that but i don't think it's quite right um rather I think there is like a consistent strand of what liberalism means that includes both libertarians and progressives and probably the modal pre-2015 conservative, uh, which is, uh, so uh, more superficially, that would be something like kind of general acceptance of uh, market institutions of uh, kind of constraints on government uh, rights, uh, whether or not you believe those are natural rights, some system of rights, so on and so forth. But I think more fundamentally than that, uh, the thing that is kind of like guiding those those prescriptions and uh, the thing that you find see crop up in more natural rights approaches, more liberal utilitarian approaches, and other kinds of approaches is a kind of presumption that there is a natural harmony of interests that uh, at root society does not need to be just a zero sum battle for uh, resources for esteem, so on and so forth, that there are actually mutually beneficial ways of relating to one another. One thing I probably was not as clear as I would have, looking back at it now, would have liked to have been in that essay is that while this is a natural harmony of interest in a certain sense, it's also uh, a harmony of interest that can only be uh, realized in a particular kind of institutional uh, way. That uh, it's the case that there's nothing about your interests and my interests that mean that we have to be deeply at odds. But um, in order to in order to ensure that uh, that we actually that our interactions actually are of this positive some way that we actually both gain from continuous interaction, there have to be good institutions that uh, protect our individual pursuit of our own interests in ways that don't run up against others. So it is, again, a natural harmony of interest in the sense that it's, uh, that there's nothing, that it's, that there is, that, it, it, that when we are acting rightly, so on and so forth, that we both gain, but it is a kind that requires a particular kind of institutional uh, backdrop which leads to the particular uh, kind of institutions that liberals are going to favor.
And then libertarians, the reason that libertarians are radical liberals is because this is not kind of just a modification of existing views, that it's not just uh, pursuing what I would see as the more like technocratic uh, aims of progressivism, but with liberal constraint, nor is it um, kind of a more liberal constraint spin on the on the uh, traditional uh, conservative lens of upholding tradition and existing authority, but it is the central thing itself. It is uh, this pursuit of mutual gain, this uh, natural harmony of interest, the and the rights that it tends to afford are the central aim itself. It's not diluted. It's not diluted by any of these other ideas, nor is it simply diluting those other ideas. What do you mean by institutions? And the reason I ask is, you know, we have seen since the Trump administration came in, one of the the real worries it gets articulated as Trump and his hangers-on and the movement that he represents are an assault on our liberal institutions, or at least the the institutions of our liberal order. And what we mean by that tends to be there are our state governing institutions. But at the same time, you had, say, radical libertarians of a certain stripe who cheered on the ultimately call it like accelerationist perspective they saw in Trumpism, particularly say like the January 6th insurrection as an example of like, hey, if you're if you're really committed to radical liberty, you should be fine with tearing down the institution of Congress or the institution of the presidency and so on. So does institutions mean those institutions of a liberal society in the sense of the state, or do you have something else in mind? Right. So this gets very complicated very quickly. Um, as I think for reasons, I think that you're, you're hitting on here. Um, I guess I would want to say that it is a kind of, uh, law and order in a certain sense, but for reasons that are familiar to a lot of people in the radical libertarian market anarchist tradition, there's nothing about law that requires the state, just kind of stable expectations about how force is used to resolve disputes. However, that also suggests that there's, and especially looking at it as something that goes beyond the state, there are a lot of institutions that are just kind of uh, long-running norms and practices for uh, handling uh, disputes that might not be reducible um, to what the state happens to do. So I've thought about that issue a lot, but I do want to uh, say something about the kind of example that you gave, because I think it's instructive, is, so I think it's important to see that there is something right in the kind of troubling response that you're talking about. Um, it just gets kind of it kind of goes off the rails at the last second and in a very dramatic way. So I think it's actually correct 
that um, there's no special um, authority or reverence that we should have we should have or bestow to uh, Congress, to uh, the Capitol, to uh, democracy, and when that is construed as a form of government that happens to go about things through voting. Uh, but, or, I, mean, I mean, after all, I think uh, applying liberal principles to the state itself, uh, we would see that the state is itself a predatory illiberal force, and that's ineradicably so. That um, is not a metaphor to say that the government is uh, like organized crime. No, the government is itself an instance of organized crime, just one that we've become especially uh, fam so familiar with that it doesn't uh, feel like it. Uh, so it's true that uh, the demise of government would be a good thing or that uh, we shouldn't have any special respect for uh, government or its institutions, so on, its, or its uh, houses, things like that, uh, like the uh, Capitol building. But at the same time, that's only in a... It has to be with the right kind of institutional comparison. That it's not, the problem is not uh, this particular government is uh, especially uh, perverse, even though they might well be especially perverse along many dimensions at a given time, but that government itself is uh, perverse. Similarly, it's, uh, you you want the alternative to an organized crime syndicate is not a power vacuum so that another organized crime syndicate can come into power. It's the alternative is the establishment of uh, law and cooperation. Now, now does uh, a failed state, for example, uh, involve the kind of demise of uh, government that you're going to want to see if you are a radical liberal? No, because the failed state is a demise of a particular government, but it just results in kind of chaotic, zero-sum uh, conflict rather than uh, the establishment of something that is uh, able to take its place, able to maintain uh, law and peaceful cooperation. Uh, and similarly, in the case of the January 6th stuff, the alternative is not, oh, now we're not going to have a government anymore, and it's going to be uh, this uh, form of peaceful cooperation, nor, uh, nor is it even the failed state case, because here it's replacing one government for another that is actually significantly more illiberal. Uh, the idea here being to try and force reimposition of a uh, electorally failed president, uh, and this would chip away at some of the liberal norms that do exist uh, in uh, 
democracy that while there's some degree to which this is uh, some non-negligible degree, which this really is an illusion, that it's not really a form of self-governance, it's nonetheless the case that you get a lot less uh, real, like, violent conflict and you get less likelihood of just brute assertions of power um, with uh, democracy and that uh, the alternative of just dictatorship that is not even trying to uh, to justify itself in liberal terms is something that's going to be a lot worse from a liberal perspective. And what matters is not that the, the, that the state, uh, as represented by the Capitol Building, doesn't have legitimate authority. What matters is, well, that does matter, uh, but what matters in this case is that it's tr- asserting a different authority is the aim behind the January 6th uh, insurrection that you were talking about. This brings up, I think, an interesting tension within liberalism and one that when I have had conversations with friends who, you know, I apply the liberal label to myself. I have good friends who apply the liberal label to themselves, but we disagree quite a lot on the nuts and bolts of policy and, and what we should aim at in when it comes to the state and its institutions. And I think a lot of that disagreement comes down to a version of what you just articulated. And namely, it's that we share a set of common ends that I think are the the liberal ends that you articulated. So this belief in non-zero sum, in in a <clears throat> shared compatibility of interests, and ultimately in the the role of government or non-government ought to be to maximize the the freedom and autonomy that we have in our lives. Uh, however, I think that where the ultimate disagreement comes in is that for a lot of for a lot of liberals and particularly we'll call them like more progressive or socially democratic liberals their argument is a combination of kind of a practical and a um and a almost psychological like it sounds like the the world that you are describing the one where these other institutions you know where we can we can tear down the institutions of the state but not end up in a reactionary right hellscape, which is what the the January 6th rioters wanted to put us into, uh, that that depends upon a not just liberal institutions, but a a kind of shared liberal values that, that we as individuals, as citizens, as people have to have a commitment to the world that that you've described and that without that commitment we will end up in in something far worse than what we have right now and i think that then gets coupled with a like okay yes that when you look around at liberal democracies there are lots of problems you know we can point to my my kind of Sanguine about the government, liberal friends nonetheless are very in favor of criminal justice reform because they see the criminal justice system in the U.S. as cruel and 
fundamentally unjust and so on. But from a realistic standpoint, the Western liberal democracies seem to be the the freest, wealthiest, most socially tolerant and accepting states, nations, governments that the world has ever known, um, that instances where there's failed states or non-states, um, the reactionary cultural elements seem to rise up or it's not, it is not the kind of liberal utopia that you're describing. And, and to some extent, it's naive to think that we could have that without some role for coercive violence in stopping the people who don't share the liberal values from asserting themselves either on an interpersonal level or in large enough groups at at a societal level. Is that is that concern warranted? And if so, does it does it speak to a like a real tension in terms of kinds of liberalism? Yeah. So just quickly, which which concern in particular do you have in mind? The one about the the role of institutions and their place in effectively allowing a society where not everyone shares these liberal values to to function not perfectly, but certainly well enough and better than the alternatives. Right. Yeah. So I do think that the concern is warranted. Um, I don't think, for example, that you can have a liberal order with no institutions that engage in violence of any kind or that um, don't respond to violence uh, some with some kind of violence and rectification of disputes, things like that. But of course, the, the dispute then would be less about that than whether or not that institution itself has to be a course of monopoly. Um, and whether or not, in the case of the uh, progressive, whether or not uh, that uh, the violence that is used has to be limited to uh, kind of just uh, disrupting and rectifying uh, prior instances of violences, uh, sorry, prior instances and ongoing instances of violence. Or if it should also be something that is kind of trying to tilt uh, the arc of uh, social, of uh, the direction of society in a more uh, humane way. Um, So there's also, uh, but at the same time, another thing you might be voicing there is just uh, skepticism that uh, the anarchist solution that a particularly radical uh, libertarian form of liberalism is going to favor is something that could actually work, that it wouldn't just break down into something more like a failed state with uh, zero-sum conflict. And that's that also is a legitimate concern. And it's part of the reason that I think the uh, project the political project that a libertarian radical should be devoted to is not just 
a negative one of, uh, well, here are all the unjust institutions of the state. Those are the ones that we should tear down. But it should also be a positive one of, well, what are the kinds of things that we want to see instead? And to the extent possible, trying to uh, build those in the here and now. Uh, that's a lot easier said than done, obviously. Um, but I think the way to begin uh, kind of answering that worry is to try and find ways of, um, th as the an old anarchist slogan has it, build the new society in the shell of the old so that uh, we aren't just left with uh, a failed state if the state were to go away, but rather that um, we're instead left with with institutions that are able to handle uh, the things that we currently rely on states for. So I don't know if that actually uh, goes any way towards answering that question, and I feel like I kind of uh, lost track of what I was saying there for a second. So tell me if there's something that I did not, uh, that I was not talking about that you were expecting me to talk about with that question. No, I think that was a helpful answer. And, but it does make me think of one way to potentially reframe part of the concern that, that liberals of the, the more, that liberalism as a system of state institutions versus liberalism in this more radical form, that the distinction there is that on the one hand, what you're describing sounds great. So we we recognize how much more liberal our current state institutions could be, and we work to improve those, but we also, you know, and to critique them, but on the positive side of things, we work to be building alternative institutions that either can serve as immediate alternatives or are there when the the current institutions stop functioning or at least start functioning poorly enough that people are ready to switch over. However, that critique involves to a great extent an argument about legitimacy of, of the current state institutions. And I have made this, you know, argument. I when I was at the Cato Institute, every intern semester, I would give them a talk about how arguments why you have a duty to obey the law don't hold up to scrutiny, and that state authority is, you know, at least from a philosophical perspective, illegitimate. That, but the the worry or the argument is that that sort of delegitimizing talk has the effect not of convincing people that they should be working on building alternatives or looking to a a radically freer society but instead is is making it harder for the very institutions that right now are protecting our liberal rights and freedoms um it weakens them in the face of particularly illiberal assaults on them and and so we're kind of it's like we're we as radical liberals would be talking a good game, but we're almost like useful idiots for illiberalism by delegitimizing the institutions that are actually protecting us right now. Right, right. Yeah, so I think that is a live concern and it is a temptation. So 
the it's important to remember that the libertarian approach is coming from a liberal uh, beginnings, so that it's kept in mind that uh, we're not just opposed to the current regime. That um, it's the regi- the regime is failing failings qua liberalism that we um the 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 lack of legitimacy is failures of liberalism that it's not um something that uh it's something that we should not take for granted the ways in which uh reasonable like reasonably expected uh possible alternatives might actually be significantly worse so if we are um, thinking about the state as a kind of uh, organized crime syndicate, the, it can be helpful to try and think about um, a more literal instance of that. So suppose that you lived in an area that was heavily uh, patrolled, heavily, uh, heavily. Uh, predated by a an actual like what everyone would agree is an organized crime syndicate but let's say that things have been pretty stable um about with the way that that crime syndicate operates and then let's say that one uh gang that it has had conflict with but has not yet kind of entered into this territory uh, is something like the Aryan Nations or some significantly worse gang that might be like more overtly violent, might be uh, more r- racially motivated, so on and so forth. That it's not just that you need to uh, pay protection every once in a while, but that it's something that significantly more amounts of conflict would be emerging. Now, there's a kind of way that you could follow this like radical libertarian um this radical libertarian uh view that the state is like a crime syndicate as a kind of tragic conservatism and that you might think yeah we're like in the case that I just described where uh we live under a crime syndicate but the alternatives are significantly worse. And so you don't want to disrupt its authority because the thing that's going to take its power will be significantly worse. But even if that's the case, even if even if there was no realistic alternative to the state, I think it's important to remember that that would still be a tragic situation. That you don't, that the results of the kind of situation I described is not, therefore, the mafia is a good thing, right? Therefore, that uh, the mafia is something that we owe duties of respect to in and of itself, um, that even when we can get away with it, we should still obey the mafia. No, it's just in that kind of case that you don't want to disrupt their authority too much just because you uh, you don't want the authority of something much worse. So even if 
anarchy was impossible, for example, I think this shouldn't lead to a kind of complacent, uh, basically positive view of existing government. It should lead to a kind of tragic acceptance of, of it in the sense that you don't want to upset it too much, but still you're going to, so what would you actually do in that kind of scenario? You would be very receptive and very interested to, to try and learn if there were ways of uh, keeping out the Aryan nations after, um, after the mafia lost its grip of power. You would be trying to find ways to protect people from uh, the mafia's existing power, even if it doesn't totally disrupt that power. You would be, uh, you would maintain a kind of uh, disdain for the mafia that would also lead you to, for example, not want to yourself participate uh, in their workings uh, and to tell other people not to participate. So, to the extent that something like that is true about the state, it still doesn't lead to the kind of like government-friendly approach uh, that you're going to see with um, standard progressives and conservatives, that you're not going to think government is just another term for the things that we do together, any more than you're going to think in the scenario I just described, the mafia is just another term for the things that we do together. It's still something that you recognize has a fundamentally antagonistic relationship. And it's going to be something that you're going to want to uh, find ways of getting away from whenever you can without uh, leaving a space for the Aryan nations to take over in, in the kind of analogy that we're, that we're giving here. Um, but I think I, I tend to be more optimistic, take less of the tragic conservative approach. But I do think that it's something that it requires like ongoing, very difficult thinking, because as you say, uh, we haven't really had a full-blown uh, market anarchist society. We've had a lot of cases where things uh, like bits and pieces of it uh, come a lot further than, uh, than there is now, where there's certainly been times where things that that we think of as obviously handled by government or handled by other things. There's a history of mutual aid societies that many libertarians are familiar with. Also, any libertarian who has talked enough about anarchism is familiar with medieval Iceland and the uh, kind of like pre, uh, pre, uh, the kind of pre uh, conquest Ireland, pre conquest. Uh, pre the the early the earliest forms of English common law things like that where there is more decentralized less monopolized uh, forms of law even that's not all the way but it does suggest that there is at least a conceptual possibility and hopefully more than that for uh, law and institutions that protect a uh, person and property without relying on the state. And if you have this antagonistic view 
of the state, you're going to want to find those. And I think that does bring up what I see as a lot of the value of radical liberalism, even for non-radical liberals, is that it is this this reminder of where your principles lead and what their what their like you know initial foundations were. And there's there's a line in your essay where you talk about you say most of today's self-described liberals are decidedly non-radical reformists, and most of them are managerial mind, managerially minded elitists who have made peace with power. And for me, at least, I think the radicalism, even if you are someone who says, I have a strong commitment to liberal state institutions and working to reform those as opposed to tearing them down, and I believe in the legitimacy of them, and so on, is kind of reminding those kinds of liberals that you shouldn't make peace with power or you shouldn't you you should always see power as a problem that we should look to address or if we can't figure out how to address it we should not at least kind of decide it's not a problem anymore yeah so again like just try and think of the analogy of uh forms of predation that that would be more obviously uh, antagonistic, like the mafia case. Are you going to want to try and find uh, more and more ways that we will be dependent on the mafia? Are we going to say that we that the way that we handle uh, say that schools are not already in the hands of the mafia? Do we want to uh, just because the mafia has a lot of resources, and they could, there's some dimensions along which they could effectively provide education. Let's even say that that's the case. Uh, are you going to want to give the schools over to the mafia and say, well, now they're having to provide us with education? No, you don't want to, you don't, you want to minimize the extent to which we uh, depend on uh, power, because as you said, power is, is always a problem. You're not going to look for ways to kind of expertly target uh, the use of mafia power. You're going to want to uh, try and find ways of restraining it to the extent possible, trying to um, find alternatives to the ways we currently rely upon it. So I th- exactly the, the, the idea of what you're saying, that we're always thinking of power as a problem. We're not um we're not just thinking what is a better way to use power we are um because the the use of power itself is always a failure the power as a problem thing though brings us to this question of of liberal values because i think one way that we can talk about the distinction between radical liberalism and what you call the the more managerial minded liberals is viewing liberalism as a political project about certain kinds of state institutions versus seeing liberalism as a set of values that have political ramifications, but also social and interpersonal ramifications. And those values, I mean, genuinely held liberal values are, I think, necessary for the functioning of a liberal society, whether that is 
of the managerial type or the radical market anarchist type. Without those, we run into problems. And I wonder how you address the fact that so many people seem to just not share liberal values or liberal virtues. So the the power thing, like there are people, there are plenty of people who actually do think that the exercise of power is fine and good, um, provided they're the ones exercising it against the people that they don't like. And I've been reading recently a fair amount about like the psychology of authoritarianism um, and the number of people who just psychologically are made upset by, angered, fearful of difference and change. And difference and change are just inevitable results of a liberal society. And so um, the, the scholar Karen Stenner, who has written extensively about this, has this line that I think about a lot in one of her essays where she says, liberal democracy has now exceeded many people's capacity to tolerate it. And that seems to be a lot of what we have seen over the last several years is just people who are like, the culture has changed too much. The the hierarchies and status rankings that I was used to or benefited from have shifted. People are doing things that make me uncomfortable. They're choosing lifestyles that are different than I would. And I may have a commitment, you know, I know I know like committed libertarians who have developed at least sympathy for Viktor Orban's Hungary because they're like, yeah, it's like I'm in favor of freedom, but man, do they like do they keep having to put gay pride flags up? You know, that's just a little bit too much. Um, Like that seems to be a real issue. And so it seems like we've been talking a lot about institutions, but there's also just so much of this depends on people cultivating and embracing a set of values that don't seem to be as widely shared as ideally they would be. Yeah. So two things. So one, I think, uh, so probably more than two things, but at first, uh, I think you're right that there's an important sense in which this depends on uh, liberal values, in particular, kind of the acceptance of the other, right? Um, that you're not just seeing uh, difference and variation as something to crush or contain. At the same time, I think one way that uh, liberal institutions, um, and to the extent that they are liberal, uh, so I think this would be even more true in a completely free society, but it is even true to some extent with uh, liberal democracy, is that it's much more able to handle uh, kind of like ideological uh, dissent to that order than illiberal ones. That um, there's an extent to which it just matters less for maintaining a liberal democracy uh, even, uh, that there's a lot of illiberal people than it matters for maintaining a particular kind of illiberal order that there are a lot of, uh, people who don't share those values. It, that if you, you're not going to maintain a, uh, Catholic dictatorship in, uh, the United States, for example, 
if uh, religious uh, if religious demographics continue to be what they are, and especially if they continue in the trajectory that they're going, right? Um, that there are just too many non-Catholics for that to for that to happen. If for the very illiberal, uh, dictatorial v- versions of uh, like integralism and things like that, that's just not a stable order unless people are all on board. But how much does it matter that um, someone happens to be uh, deeply illiberal in a liberal order? It does matter, but that nothing prevents them from engaging in trade with other people. Um, And that trade also is something that tends to increase liberal values. This is the sort of thing that uh, figures of the kind I was just talking about are so concerned about. That um, that living in a liberal society tends to increase liberal values. That the more that you interact with another person on peaceful terms of free association or uh, in market exchange, the more likely you are to think that they are not that much of a threat uh, to your very existence. Uh, how hard is it to maintain, like? Uh, really deeply held, deeply seated forms of uh, homophobia, for example, if you know a sufficiently high number of gay people who you have had very pleasant uh, kind of low-level interactions with. A lot harder than, uh, than if you haven't been engaging in market exchange with those people, for example. And then... Also, uh, this is, I think, yet another re- the fact that like that liberalism kind of increases its ability to sustain itself. Uh, that that the more liberal an order is, the more able it is able to uh, uh, the more it is able to accommodate for difference and disagreement with the liberal order is yet another reason to not go in, for example the kind of uh, naive, technocratic, uh, progressive direction of liberalism, where the thought is that we want to impose uh, liberal values through the state, through expert uh, technocratic interventions, because the more that you empower these illiberal forms of relating to one another, the more that people will, to some degree, truthfully perceive uh, illiberal zero-sum conflict, and the more that they will themselves gear towards zero-sum conflict. And the same is true in conservative direction, obviously, uh, that people are going to be a lot less friendly to uh, traditional forms of religion if they think that there is a live possibility that those traditional forms of religion are going to be violently imposed upon them. So it at least seems plausible that the rapid acceleration of agnosticism and atheism in the United States in the last like 20 years has something to do with uh, the attack from the religious right uh, in the 2000s. That illiberal impositions of values creates a more zero-sum conflict mindset that leads people to, um, instead of finding ways to cooperate, just find ways for their side to dominate. Uh, in that exchange. 
We are recording this a few days after the the 2022 elections when it seems like a lot of Americans rejected or at least more Americans than we expected rejected profoundly illiberal candidates uh and and so the the trajectory that it seemed like the country was on in a deeply illiberal direction at least isn't as doesn't appear as fast as it did a week ago that said we are definitely not living under a liberal regime it seems like things are likely to get worse before they get dramatically better the the market anarchism that you advocate is not at least an immediate terms on the table as an option within this current environment then what do you see as the role of radical liberalism and radical liberals in trying to make the next 5 10 however many years a better place there's a lot of ways to answer that question. I'm going to try and limit myself to two main points here. One, I think uh, people should generally try to uh, focus on uh, their comparative advantage in politics. And I think a part of the comparative advantage for libertarians, radical liberals, is uh, that we are less likely to kind of presume uh, state power is the way to solve something, that we're less likely to uh, presume that the f- forms of political action that matter are the electorally focused, standardly assumed channels of, of change. So I think libertarians, I, I don't want to say that I don't think there's any role ever for electoral activism, or for reform, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that people in general, including libertarians, have greatly overestimated that. Um, So I think libertarians ought to be uh, trying to look for ways of, uh, of bettering the world that don't rely on uh, a on trying to adjust state power. Uh, So obviously, especially with recent recent events, the fate of cryptocurrencies, as always, is very much up in the air. That's the kind of thing that I think um, libertarians can invest themselves in trying to find um, solutions uh, to things that don't the kind of thing that I think libertarians should be invested in, which is trying to develop alternatives to the existing uh, the existing uh, structure um, that we can build here and now without appealing to that structure. Um, so that kind of like direct action focused politics is something that libertarians can do. And I think it might be especially good for them to aim themselves in that direction because the more that you're focused on that and the less you're focused on more electorally 
driven uh, forms of activism, the less you're going to get into this kind of like hyper-partisan polarization, that you're going to be um, less likely to find yourself kind of drifting into just wanting to crush one or another uh, main side of political conflict uh, and more that you're going to be kind of like focused on your actual values. Uh, whereas if you're focused on the electoral uh, activism, um, that is itself by definition a zero-sum conflict that you're investing yourselves in. And you can kind of lose sight of the ideas in favor of this kind of more uh, tribal conflict. And that's the, like, it's the second point, which is, I think, when libertarians are kind of engaging, when radical liberals, libertarians are engaging in uh, this kind of like broader political conversation, it should often be towards kind of like steering things back towards uh, questions of ideas and principles. Because uh, I think something that is lost sight of in a lot of conversations about polarization and partisanship is how little um, that it really is about ideas, even at all. That polarization is not just, um, for example, uh, one side getting really extreme in one direction and the other side gets really extreme in the other direction. Along some dimensions, uh, they might even start to look more similar to each other in terms of policies. But what happens uh, is that the ideas kind of lose focus and they come more like jerseys, that it's more about uh, the power and the control itself than it is on any kind of um, actual ideas about how society should be governed. And when you take it back to the question of ideas, it becomes a lot harder to maintain uh, illiberal ways of governing. So the second thing is that when, uh, when radical liberals, uh, libertarians who realize that they are radical liberals, engage in the broader political conversation, it should be trying to retool the conversation back towards one about ideas and less uh, just the conflict itself. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. If you'd like to support the show, get every episode two weeks early, and have access to some other fun perks, head over to reimaginingliberty.com slash subscribe to learn more. Thank you.